Great to be back with you this morning as we study the life of Moses. So Moses is one of the, the only figures in all the Bible that we get from birth to death. We get his birth and we get all the way into the point of Moses' death. And um, throughout his life, Moses is known, especially in the New Testament, when people have had time over the years to reflect on all that Moses was and all that Moses did. Moses is known as the servant of God. The writer of Hebrews calls him such. He is the servant of God. You have a little uh, snippet of a passage, we won't read it this morning, from Hebrews chapter 3, that is the rubric through which we are uh, studying the life of Moses as we look backwards from the perspective of those who already know about the coming of God's Son, Jesus. Moses is called the servant of God, and that is the rubric through which we are connecting this semester the life of Moses with our own lives as men. What does Moses, this ancient leader of Israel, have to teach us about what it is, what it means to actually serve God? Our passage this morning may very well be the most famous recorded scene in all of Moses' life, if not the entire Old Testament. Uh, If you know very little about the Bible, you may still know this scene. Moses encounters God in a fiery bush. And in that counter, Moses is called personally by God to go to uh, to Egypt, back to Egypt, and to rescue Israel, the people of God, out of their slavery. There's a lot of important things in this passage. It's a vivid passage, uh, a lot of memorable moments. But most importantly, more than anything else, this is a passage, this is a chapter about how the weak become strong. Chapter 3 in Exodus is a chapter about God's own commitment to empower the weak towards a restorative or a redemptive or a full and flourishing end. People have long noted how the God of the Bible is the only God among all the ancient deities who specifically promised to align himself with the cause of the weak. In other words, there are no other ancient deities that you can find that, that decide that they want to back the, uh, the vulnerable, <laughs> that they're going to back the underdog or uh, the powerless. So we get passages like this one from Isaiah all throughout the Old Testament. Here's what Isaiah writes about Yahweh, this God who has come to set his people of Israel free. Isaiah says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases his strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The empowering of the weak and the plundering of the strong. That's the major theme in Exodus chapter 3. And it begs a question this morning. As men, do you count yourself among the weak? Do you count yourself among the weak? I would say, and I don't think this is controversy at all, that there is little, if any, cultural space or incentive for men to confront and to confess their own weakness. Think about it. You're certainly not allowed to be weak at work. That doesn't inspire the confidence of your supervisors or any potential investors or business partnerships or your employees. At home, traditionally, a man is supposed to be the least weakest member of his family. You're supposed to go home every day and be uh, pillars, stalwarts, 
You're supposed to create space for everyone else in the household to uh, express their own weakness. As men, we don't celebrate weakness in our uh, heroes. We don't celebrate it in our sports teams. (laughs) We don't celebrate it in our institutions. We look at those things and we call them excuses. And even in the church, I'm not sure we know how to foster a culture where men can express something innately true about themselves. That is, that we are weak. In fact, Eugene Peterson, a pretty well-known contemporary pastor, once wrote this. He says, at one critical point in my life as a pastor, when I was out of control, obsessive in my indulgence of this sin, and this sin being the indulgence of his busyness, being strong for everyone else, Peterson writes, I was rewarded with the largest single annual increase in salary that I've ever received. His point is very clear. We do not value limits. We don't value expressions of weakness. We value instead, in every cultural space, shows of strength. We value performance. And that is true even where you sit in the church. I remember driving home from the hospital with my uh, my first child. We have four kids, my wife and I do, uh, three sons and a little a little daughter. And I was driving down Abrams. We used to live off Abrams, which is a, a street in East Dallas that runs north-south. And driving home from the hospital... And I, I sort of noticed on Abrams, I've been on Abrams for a couple of minutes, that everyone was passing me. And I don't like this. So I look down and I notice I'm going 20. The speed limit on Abrams is maybe 35. And I'm doing 20 and I'm sitting there and I notice my hands are gripped to the steering wheel, white knuckled at 10 and 2. I almost never drive that carefully. And it occurred to me that I was driving like that because I was so scared, even unconsciously, that I was inadequate to protect my newborn son from the other drivers that were on Abrams at 11 o'clock in the morning. That I couldn't get him three miles from the hospital to home. And then I remember feeling embarrassed because fathers are not supposed to feel that way. Fathers are not supposed to feel scared and weak and inadequate. So I gave myself a little internal pep talk and I hit the gas and I think I pushed it up to 30 and we made home in about, you know, three or four minutes. You know, one of the things that Moses teaches us, especially in this passage, is that where you sit this morning, you are objectively weak. You are objectively inadequate. When I say the word objectively, it means that you are that regardless of how you feel, regardless of the ways in which you may be able to not feel it or to hide it. You are objectively not enough in yourself even to stand before God as a servant of God And certainly not enough in yourself to engage in the incredibly dignifying task of leading others well. Objectively, we are counted among the weak, even as men. And yet God is pleased, as we read in Isaiah, as we just read, God is pleased to give power to the weak. And we will see this in Moses' life, especially here in Exodus 3. It's a long chapter. We're going to read the whole thing together. Grab your coffee, and let's look at it together, starting in verse 1, chapter 3. You'll have it on your sheet. The narrator writes, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, while the bush is not burned. 
When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Egypt, children of Israel, excuse me, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry, for clothing, You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And so shall you plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray now and ask him to teach us his word this morning. Father in heaven, we do pray, God, that once again by your spirit that you would empower us to see what you have freely given us in the person and work of your son and that you would make us servants. Uh, Oh Lord, um, we pray that you would use your old servant Moses. Use this particular dialogue, this very powerful encounter with him to be a mark in our own lives. Father, we ask that you would um, give us much grace this morning to see you, to know you, to love you. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to take this long narrative in three sections this morning. Basically, here's your outline if you like that sort of thing. First, and we'll spend the most time here, I just want you to see Moses' weakness before God, verses 1 through 7, excuse me, 1 through 6. Moses' own weakness before God and, and his encounter with God. Second, I want you to notice notice Moses' weakness 
before uh, the task to which he is called. A better way to say it is, notice Moses' weakness before his calling. First his weakness before God, and then Moses' weakness before his calling. Verses 7 through 17. And finally and briefly, I want you to see God's promise of power for the weak. What is his new promise of power or his promise of new power for the weak in verses 18 through 22? So first, Moses' weakness before God in verses 1 through 6. In chapter 3, we continue the story from chapter 2 because that's how numbers go. (laughs) And we meet Moses about 40 years. You wouldn't know this from the narrative, but the writer of Acts tells us this. It's been about 40 years from chapter 2 when Moses had fled to Midian in a panic after he had killed an Egyptian. And presumably because we've heard so little about Moses, Moses has lived a quiet, ordinary life as a shepherd working for his uh, at least somewhat uh, wealthy father-in-law. And this particular day is probably like any other. Moses uh, began it like any other. He was immersed in the ordinary of his adult life, when all of a sudden, within the ordinary confines of an ordinary day, Moses encounters the extraordinary, right? The angel of the Lord, that's what the Bible tells us, the angel of the Lord comes to Moses in a flame in the midst of the bush, in the midst of a bush that was burning, and yet the bush itself was not consumed. The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the New Testament is a, um, a very special figure. He is unlike any other angels in the Old or New Testament. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament takes on the character of God. He has the voice of God. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is given the prerogatives of God so that he is in manifestation uh, uh, identical to God. I mean, this very fact caused most, um, a lot of uh, commentators to look back and say, look, what we have here is a pre-incarnate theophany. It's a big word for saying We have a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, of Jesus Christ, here every time we see the angel of the Lord. That's not necessarily important. What is important that you see is that the presence of the angel of the Lord is identical to the very presence of God. And you'll see this in verse 4 because the language of the angel of the Lord is utterly replaced from this point forward by just the language of the Lord. Look at verse 4. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see God, God called to him, not the angel of the Lord, but God called to him out of the bush, Moses, 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 look at me. And now all of a sudden, Moses is a part of something incredibly rare in the Old Testament, incredibly rare throughout the Bible, and that is a personal encounter with the living God. In fact, it's so rare throughout the Bible that God himself in this moment for Moses lists most of the other people who had experienced anything similar. It's a short list. It's a family list. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And how does Moses respond to God? God calls out to him, and what does Moses say? What does he say? Moses says, here I am. God has called Moses, and Moses says, here I am. And doesn't that seem like the right thing to do? God calls to him, and then Moses, without pretension, makes himself available to God just as he is in himself. He presents himself to God just as he is. Come as you are. Because God has called out to him. And Moses gives himself to God earnestly. He gives himself to God honestly. He gives himself to God sincerely. But I want you to notice what what God does not say next to Moses. 
Moses has just said, here I am. Take me as I am. And God does not say, well, come give me a hug, Moses. He does not say, look, it is so good to have you here. So good for you to be in my presence. Come closer. Let's go get a beer and talk casually as old friends. What does God say instead? Do not come closer. Do not get any closer. In fact, where you stand, where you are, take off your shoes. Because where you stand, even at a distance from me, you are in yourself too profane. Make yourself less profane in my presence. It doesn't sound very hospitable, does it? It doesn't sound very hospitable. Because it's not. God is not welcoming Moses into his presence just as he is. Even though Moses in all these things is good, Moses is open, he is sincere, he is available. These are deeply important modern virtues, but there is one thing that Moses is without a doubt not. Moses is not good. Moses is not good enough in himself to come close to God. And Moses knows this. Just as Adam did in Genesis 3 after he'd taken the forbidden fruit and eaten it. What did did Adam do? He hides from God. What does Moses do here? Moses hides his face. For the writer says he was afraid to look at God. My wife and I were in the kitchen recently when we heard a, a large crash in our bedroom. Again, we have four little ones. We have boys. We know not to keep nice things around, um, and so this is not an a uncommon sound to hear in our house, but this one was a little bit louder than normal, and so we rushed into the bedroom, and we see what's made the noise. We thought maybe a mirror had fallen or maybe another earthquake. I don't We didn't feel an earthquake or anything, but go in there, and sure enough, um, our bedroom window, the window that leads out into the backyard, has been busted. Um and we see one of our kids, I won't name any names here, they're getting too old, so they, I don't want them to feel like I told on them all the time. And so we see one of our, our sons running into, um, uh, we have a room behind our garage, it would be too much to call it a back house, but we'll just call it a back house. Running to the back house to hide from us. And we see what's happened, he has kicked, he has punted from the other side of the yard a football through the window. And as a dad, I was secretly proud. <laughs> the leg strength on that kid. So he went and hid, and I went out to my son, who was in our back house, and he had run away to hide, and I found him, and when I found him, he was hysterical, and tears, he kept saying, I can't go back into the house, I can't go back into the house, I can't go back to the house, and really, I had no idea what he meant, I was like, well, I can't, you have legs, you can just walk back into the house, go back into the house anytime. He said, Dad, I can't go back into the house because I broke the window, and I can't go back in, and I'm confused because I can't understand the connection between breaking the window and getting back in the house until I realize what he's saying to me is that he's not worthy. He can't go back into the house because he doesn't feel worthy to go back inside and see what he has done. Now, where does he learn that? Don't, don't look at me like I'm a bad dad and I like, taught him that or something. Okay, You're, He didn't learn it from me, I don't think. <laughs> where does he learn that? I think it's an old truth that weighs upon every human conscience. We associate uh, not being good enough with shame and a desire to hide with excommunication and a loss of intimacy. There's a scene in a, a recent TV show called True Detective. About halfway through the first season, you don't need to have seen this show, when Matthew McConaughey's character, Rusty, 
he's questioned about um, his interrogation technique. So Rusty has, has garnered this reputation as a detective, and it's a growing reputation in Louisiana that he is the guy you go see. He is the man who can, who can get a confession out of anyone. And one of the other detectives is questioning Rusty later, and he goes to Rusty and says, well, why don't you tell us your secret? Is there some secret you want to pass on to the rest of us? And here's what Rusty says. Rusty says, look, everyone knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everyone wants confession. Everyone wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty especially. Then he says, and everybody is guilty. Rusty is saying what my son felt, what I felt for him as a father, as a father, being a father to him. What Moses feels before God right now in this narrative. And that is we are objectively guilty. We know that there's something wrong with us. We feel it inside, and guess what? We are right. And most importantly, what I want you to see in this story is that a personal encounter with God does not immediately appease your guilt. Knowing God is not, an encounter with God is not self-esteem therapy. In fact, it does just the opposite. It throws our guilt into even sharper relief because we begin to measure ourselves against the grandeur of God, against the strength of His beauty and His character and His goodness. And the word for that, the word for the distance between us and God, the distance between his perfection and our profanity, is the word holiness. Moses sees God and he knows that he needs to be made holy before he ever thinks about becoming a servant. The people of Israel know they need to be made holy before they ever become a light to the nations. We as men need to be made holy before we ever talk about what we should be doing for other people. Now here's the good news. We see it hinted at even here. God is specifically in the business of taking the weak and the profane and the inadequate and making it holy. He does it to the bush and to the ground. The ground to sticks and leaves. The ground is called holy. He allows Moses to stay near by way of a small sacrifice by virtue of just taking off his shoes and and letting something go. And soon God will call the nation of Israel holy, but not before blood. The blood of a spotless lamb is sprinkled across the doorposts as they sleep at night. God is in the business of making the guilty, the inadequate, the weak holy. And what is hinted at here is that holiness always emanates from a closeness to God, from intimacy with God, with the all-consuming glory of God, always made possible by virtue of a sacrifice. When my son was in tears in that back house saying, Dad, I can't go back into the house. I can't go back into the house. I said, yeah, why, why can't you? Just walk back in. No one's mad at you. And he said, Dad, tell me first, who's going to pay for the window? Who's going to pay for the window? And I went over and hugged him and said, Son, you are after 12 years of hard labor. <laughs> I said, I'll pay. You can't afford to pay for it, and so I'll pay for it. God is the only being who can confer holiness. And we know from the death of his own son what our holiness cost to him, what he was willing to pay so that we might stand near to him on holy ground. It is true that we would do well to look at Moses and make ourselves available before God as Moses did, but that's not enough. We must also trust that the holiness of God can touch us in the person of Jesus Christ 
and can burn inside of us without consuming us. That the holiness of Jesus can be given to us even as it was given to common ground that day as Moses stood on top of it. God compensates for the common, for the weak, for the inadequate, and he makes those things holy. Here's what I want you to see next. Moses' weakness not only before God, but also before the calling to which God gives him in verses 7 through 17. Let me start here for a minute. What is his calling? I want you to think about this. This is a little bit rhetorical in this facet. I don't want you to answer me. That might be embarrassing for you. So I just want you to think about it internally. What is Moses' calling here? What is his calling? Well, notice, first of all, what it's not. Moses is called to serve God, but he is not called to redeem Israel. (laughs) He's not called to redeem Israel. Moses is, in fact, not called to free Israel from slavery. Moses is not being called to fix people. He is not being called to fix their circumstances. God is not calling Moses to be the Messiah. That's his own job. God is calling Moses to simply go and to proclaim the message of God's deliverance and to be out in front of that message as a leader. Now that doesn't sound so bad except for the fact that Moses has to deliver this wildly unpopular message to the most powerful person in the world at that time, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. So here's what I want you to see briefly from this passage. Number one, Moses' call is not to be God. And number two, Moses does have, though, an incredibly dignifying, magnanimous part to play in what God is doing. In the call to serve God, if we're talking about serving God, the call to serve God uh, must be kept in, in the perspective between these two buoys. We are not God on one hand. God does not need you or us to fix our families or the, our friends or the people at work or anyone else. He doesn't need us. But secondly, we have incredibly dignifying, magnanimous parts to play in what God is doing in rescuing his world. He gives us parts to play, even though he doesn't need to. And it's, it's very obvious in this passage that Moses feels the weight of all of that, especially the second part. Because notice how Moses responds. Now, you may know this, but over the course of this chapter, chapter 3, you see it a couple times here. And over the course of the next chapter, chapter 4, Moses offers five objections regarding his own inadequacy to the task that God is calling him to do, to proclaim the message of God's work, redemptive love. Five objections. Here they are, basically. Number one, I'm not worthy. Uh, Who am I? Who am I to go? Number two, I don't know enough. What should I say, oh Lord? I I don't know what to say. (laughs) What should I say? Number three, I'm not impressive enough. They won't believe me. Send someone else. Number four, I'm not competent enough. And then finally, Moses doesn't even offer an excuse. He just says, look, would you please send someone else? I don't have anything else left. Find someone else to do the job. And God only answers him with one basic reply every time. He doesn't change his response. Basically, God answers with one reply every time, and it's this. I will be with you. I'm unworthy. I'll be with you. I don't know enough, I will be with you. I'm not competent enough, I will be with you. I'm not impressive enough, I will be with you. You see what happens? Moses lists over and over his own inadequacies, and not once does God say, ah, well, you're weak, well, let me fix that. (laughs) Not once does God say, you're so unworthy, so let me make you worthy. He doesn't once say, look, you don't know enough, so let me make you smart. Not once does God say, you're not impressive, well, let me make you good-looking, well-built, and fun to be with, and everyone will look at you and like you and want to follow you. He never once says that. 
God never promises to fix Moses before using him. Instead, he offers one consolation, and that is his promise to be with him, and that is enough. That's enough. The promise of the presence of God. Surely you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't want to spoil this for anyone, but you've had 40 years, 30 years now. (laughs) Maybe it's been a while, sadly, but uh, there's a scene in the movie that is one of my favorite scenes, and surely you won't forget it if you've seen it before. It's the scene where Indiana is in a village, town, whatever it is, and he faces off against this very impressive guy who looks like, I don't know, an Arabian ninja, right? So he has this black garb, and he's bigger than everyone else, and He's got these fancy sword tricks. And the crowd parts to watch this little guy, this little American cowboy, get sliced and diced by this big, fancy Arabian ninja who's got all these fancy tricks. And do you remember what Indiana Jones does? The guy's doing all his tricks, and he rolls his eyes, and he pulls out his gun, and he shoots him. <laughs> and the moral of the story is the little guy with the gun beats the big guy with the sword every time. Moses is constantly worried about his smallness. He's constantly worried about his weakness in comparison with the power and the strength of that which he is supposed to go up against. And what does God tell him over and over? Moses, you've got the gun. You've got the gun. Stop worrying about how you stack up. You are the one holding the gun. I will be with you. You have me. I mean, there is no doubt that as you think about the, uh, the, the breadth of your life, all the things that you are called to, that God himself calls you to, that you feel your inadequacy in the face of it. I had it described recently to me by a friend who said he felt like in his life he's always staring at mountains. And it's just a, you know, being a good father, being a, uh, a good husband, serving his neighbors, uh, sharing the gospel, fighting against his own sins, stewarding his resources, caring for his parents, whatever it is. All these mountains that he has to climb, and it just feels utterly overwhelming. And he says, you know what, I just don't feel up to the task. And he is right. And yet, how does God answer us when he calls us to do all those things faithfully? He says, you are holding the gun. You're holding the gun. I have promised to go with you. I have promised to be with you. Robert Murray McShane, a a famous Scottish pastor who lived about 200 years ago, offered this advice. He said, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. Every one time you look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. And isn't that what God is asking Moses to do? Moses, stop looking at yourself and look at me. Take ten looks at me. I am with you, and because I am with you, you now have the freedom to forget about yourself. You have the freedom now to forget about your own weaknesses and inadequacies and instead to focus on the needs of others. I will take care of you. Go and serve others in the newfound freedom I've given you, not to think about yourself anymore. Moses' weakness to his calling is overcome by the promise of God to go with him. Just as his weakness before God is overcome by the gift of God, the sacrifice of God to make him holy. Finally, this morning, the last few verses, I just want you to see the promise now of new power for the week. The promise of new power for the week in verses 18 through 22. We'll do this quickly. We get this throughout the last four verses, the five verses, excuse me. But I want to turn your attention specifically to the language of verses 21 through 22, just for a moment. Here's what it says. Here's how the passage ends. This is the, you know, this is the finale. The narrator writes, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. 
And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor. And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and your daughters. And so in this way shall you plunder the Egyptians. This is, as the narrator describes it, the fulfillment, the way that Moses will know that God has won the day. This is the mark of victory for Israel. It's the mark of victory for Israel's God, the plundering of the strong and the favoring of the weak. And I just want you to notice who's doing the plundering here. Do you notice that? It's specifically the women. They haven't made their appearance until now. It is the enslaved women. It is the weakest of the population, the ones that no one would have guessed, who will take freely from the wealth of the Egyptians and will use that wealth as trophies to God's own strength in rescuing them. The theme here is this. The victims will eventually become the victors. The victims will become the victors. Does that sound familiar? The victim becomes the victor. I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2. Listen carefully. Paul writes, At the cross, that is, in the weakness of God, when God seemed defeated, Christ, he says, disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He finished them at the cross. He doesn't say the resurrection. He says, at the cross, at his weakest, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them at the cross to open shame by triumphing over them. What is Paul saying? At the cross, the victim became the victor. At the cross, the weakness of God plundered the strong. The weakness of God plundered that which had authority over you, evil and sin and death, and he came away with you as his treasure. So that the final word of this passage, the final word of the gospel, is not our inadequacy. It's not our weakness. That's not how things get left. The final word of the gospel is our empowerment. Our empowerment over that which once held us captive, over our appetites and our bodies and our thoughts and our choices and our past, our relationships, our work, and all the once misguided but good creation that God has to offer. Empowerment is the end of God's rescuing grace, and here's why. Because empowerment was the beginning of God's creative work. When he made you in his image so long ago, and gave you dominion and authority to rule over every living thing. He returns to you the dignity of that task, once again, given back to you. The weak are made strong. And in Jesus Christ, the weak are given back all the treasures of their captors. And men, listen to me. Today you are living that story. That's your story today. Today you will go out from here, and just as with Moses... Today, God wants you to know that your excuses have no currency in your life. Your excuses to the task that God has given you, has, they have no currency in your life. You know why? Because God will be with you. God is with you. Take ten looks at him for every one look at yourself. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for our morning together. We thank you for the life of your servant Moses. We thank you, God, that he was created in your image, that he also bears the image of the first Adam and his fallenness, and he shows us a lot about ourselves. We thank you even more so, Father, that he points to the work of your rescue in our own lives, and we do pray, God, that you would help us to live that story well. And as we go out today, as we move into our groups and our friendships and our marriages and our work, as we move out as fathers, as we move against our sin, that you would empower us, that you would help us to believe that you are with us, and that is enough. 
And we pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.